We're coming back to Hebrews. And uh, let me just say that uh, next week we're going to be going from Hebrews 6 verse 4 downwards. I don't know how far because it's quite, quite detailed there. Um, and uh, how many of you have a clue what's in Hebrews 6? You've read it, you've got some idea what Hebrews 6 says? All right. Well, from, chapter, from verse 4 onwards, it's one of the most difficult and could be one of the most distressing passages in Scripture. It's a very severe warning. So we're not starting on that this week, it's next week. I don't want to put you off coming. I'm going to explain it to you, hopefully give you some reassurance, but there, are, there is a warning there too. Help us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. You who inspired Scripture, inspire our hearts to receive your word. Amen. So we finished two weeks ago, at chapter 5, with that call to maturity. Of course, when the scriptures were written, and when this letter was written to Christians from a Jewish background, in other words, Hebrews, that's why it's called Hebrews, in the early AD 60s, it was written in Greek, and it didn't have chapter and verse numbering. In fact, to tell you the truth, it was probably written in Greek that didn't even have any punctuation. So our breaking up scripture with chapters and verses may be helpful for us to find our way around. We can check the numbers and so on. But it often cuts through a point that's being made, through an argument that's being pursued. So I'm going to go back a bit today to pick up from where we were in chapter 5. Okay? And today's subject is foundations. And the, the things I'm going to mention this morning, I'm only going to give you an outline because those are the things we're going to pick up over that foundations series. So I'm going to say much more then. I've got to really kind of tie myself up this morning so I don't say lots of stuff to you because we're going to be exploring it together and hopefully with some question and answer as well along the way, okay, Uh, on those evenings. Concerning him, Jesus, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you should be able to carry some responsibility and care for others. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, just keeping on doing it, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Straight on. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, Christ and Messiah are the same word, let us press on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation, see the word there, foundation, of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. Foundations. That's all we're going to read through today. That's as far as we're going today. So we have here these foundations, these basics, starting out principles of what it is to be a Christian, one who believes and obeys the Lord Jesus. And if you haven't already seen it in what we've read, I'm going to explain to you as we go along just in the next few minutes, these things are very practical. You know, I've got books on my shelves. I've been organizing my books at home. And I've got books that are called Systematic Theologies. And you read them through and you get lots of information. Right? But the business of preaching, the business of church teaching, is not to run a seminar, Systematic Theology. It's to get hold of something from the Scripture which then has impact and effect on us. It changes us. Right? In other words, it has to be practical. And these things are practical. They have application. All true scripture doctrine is practical. It gives us knowledge about God and also tells us how to relate to God. It tells us what he has done and will do for us, but also what he requires of us. That's what the words doctrine and teaching refer to in the Bible. It's never just information. It's instruction. It's practical. Now, I've preached through these verses in Hebrews 6 a number of times over the years, including here at Lighthouse, though not for a a good while. And I actually believe that this is the nearest thing in Scripture you'll find to a foundation course. People sometimes do a foundation course. Sometimes it's a church membership course. We call that 
partnership in our church. All right? The, the foundation course is like for people who are becoming Christians, but, but we're also saying to you, come if you can on a Thursday or a Sunday in these next few weeks, because we want you to also be like the people we read about in Matthew in, in Hebrews 5 there. You ought by now to be teachers that you can actually, whether a group leader or you're just mentoring someone who's a new Christian, can actually know I've got this framework by which I can help them. I can talk to them about these things. It's, a, it's the nearest we've got to a foundation course. Laying a foundation, Hebrews 6.1. So we're going to start going through those in uh, September 29th, Sunday 2nd of October and through. You see, you need to have foundations laid down and established in your life as a believer. This morning I'm going to briefly outline them to you. Okay? The point about foundations is that they are the beginning of the building. You get the foundations right and then you can build on it. And the day comes when it's livable, when, when, when it's comfortable. But it, it's a long walk, it's a long journey to get that doing. And I tell you what, I know from experience, digging foundations is hard work. Don't despise the fact it takes, it takes days to get those right before you can do anything that begins to look like a building. And I think for many Christians, there's, we've, we've, been, we've been not helped in foundations and we've been poor at, at, at evaluating the things that be, are the very first things that need to get built into our lives as new Christians. You remember the words of Jesus, I quoted them two weeks ago, about the two house builders, one built on rock, one built on sand, same storm, same flood, same disaster came to both of them, but one house stood and one fell. Why? Because of the foundations. The buildings may have been equally well built, but for that one thing, the foundations were poor. Foundations are there to be built upon. The foundations laid and then the building goes up. And the apostolic writer here is not dismissing the gospel and saying, forget that old stuff, we're going to move you on to some good stuff here. I've heard preachers talk like that. I, I, don't, I won't tell you what I'd like to do to them. But... It isn't that the elementary teaching about Messiah is old hat and we, we need new revelation or deeper revelation. You know, hear people talk about that. You don't move off your foundations. You keep building on them. Right? Oh, well, we don't need that anymore. We'll go over here. Yeah, you know what you're going to do? You're going to build on sand. The foundation is Jesus, and these things that we're going to look at this morning and look at in a larger way over coming weeks are practical things by which we are built to Jesus, in Jesus, on Jesus, so that we can grow. But here's the thing. These things are not just information, they're instruction. And if we don't obey the instructions of God's word, guess what? We don't grow beyond that point. If you don't act upon the truth you've received, you won't receive more truth, no matter how many deeper truth conferences you go to. <laughs> nice jazz, whatever it is. You can't take the steps further ahead until you take the next step. Do you get it? Yeah. Right? I'd like, to be, I'd like to walk over there. No, you've got to walk from here to there. And so the Christian life is one of progression, step by step. It's often called in the Bible, the walk. Yes. It's called a walk. All right? Some of us want to be long jumpers. I don't like it here, I want to be there. No, you've got to walk there with the Lord. Yes. Step by step, obedient step by obedient step. Doing what he's telling you at that time. And you grow and you develop in the walk. So what are the foundations here? Since the last time I worked through these verses, I've realized I'm, 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 I'm pretty dumb because there are seven, really, because the first one is the most important one and the rest relate to him. The first one is Jesus. The foundations are the basic teachings, the start-out teachings about Christ, about Jesus. The writer's already said, I've got much more to tell you about Jesus, but you're a bit dull yet. You need to catch up, and then we can tell you some more about him. Notice it's not something away from him. It's more about him. Chapter 7, and how Jesus is like Melchizedek and how all that kind of goes on. Teaching about Jesus, repentance from works that lead to death, faith towards God, instruction about washings, instruction about laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So one by one then, let's look at them. First of all, Jesus. The message of Hebrews is Jesus is better. 
Jesus isn't better than the thing that you might think you're safer in, like hiding in Judaism because you're being persecuted as a Christian, but the Romans will leave you alone if you're a Jew. So, so let's go back to Judaism. No, 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 Jesus is better. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation, the cornerstone. But there are six practical issues that build us into him. What shall I say about Jesus? I, 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 get, a, I get a longer session than this in a week's time to say something huge. More, not, not huge. No, you don't get the idea I'm going to preach for an hour and a half. I'm not on those evenings. I want a, I want a lot of discussion and interaction together. Where shall I start? Well, I found this statement of faith from Moody Global Ministries. Obviously, it's an evangelistic organization. Moody was a great evangelist in the late Victorian era, a friend of Spurgeon and J.C. Rylanson. American guy, great evangelist. This is their statement about Jesus. I like it. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, which is to say he is himself very God, true God. He took upon himself our nature, being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He died upon the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sin of the world. He arose from the dead in a body, in the body in which he was crucified. He ascended into heaven in that body, glorified, where he is now interceding, now our interceding high priest. He will come again personally, and visibly to set up his kingdom and to judge the quick. That's the living and the dead. Jesus. You see, the gospel, uh, you know, of the years you read, lots of people say, this is the way to present the gospel. And, the, and do you know what some of them start with? They start with us. They start with, like, you know, Romans 3, all have sinned. The, in the Bible, it never starts there. The gospel, if you go to Romans 1 and verse 1 and 2, the gospel is the good news of God concerning his son. It's the news that God has come in Jesus. It's only when you get to chapter 3 of Romans that it's, you know, all have sinned. If we follow the pattern of the letter to the Romans, our message of the gospel starts with Jesus. God sent his son. Now I've kind of put some headings together just quickly. Just to spell these out to us. God sent his son to become one of us, to become truly human. He was truly man, yet he did not cease to be the eternal Son of God. Never switched off being God. He was God in flesh. Didn't access his, his, his capacity. Did not, did not use his prerogatives, but submitted himself to the Father. He humbled himself, but he didn't cease being God. He was God in flesh. God sent his son to live the life of perfect obedience to God's will that we were incapable of doing. Why? Because of the weakness of our sinful nature. The law, good and holy. I can't do it. Why would you tell me that? I can't do that. But Jesus kept all the law. He never sinned. He always pleased the Father. God sent his son to teach us, to bring us his word. Jesus was and is our prophet and our teacher. That's why I, 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 my Bibles, are, for years now, I read letter Bibles, because when I come to the words of Jesus, I want to slow right down and say, Jesus himself is now speaking. He's our prophet and teacher. He's greater than Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the rest of it, even though he, he, he encapsulates all of those and relives some of those things in his own life before Israel. God sent his son to demonstrate God's kingdom to us, God's character and power, his love, his power, his wisdom, which were not just kind of out there, oh, look at that, oh, that's amazing, like in creation. But this was God doing things in people and for people, healing them, restoring them, rescuing sinners, cleansing lepers. And Jesus says, God, look, see, that's the kingdom. He didn't do it like I just did it. He said, look, the kingdom of God's. See, it drove out a demon. He said, now you know the kingdom of God's amongst you. Did you see that? God did that. Now he did it. Of course he did. But he said, you know, that's the kingdom of God. God's character, God's goodness, God's wisdom, God's power. Making things happen for the good of people. Jesus demonstrated God's kingdom. 
Jesus came, sent from the Father, to show us the Father. Jesus is the image, the icon of God. Not like the Greek icons that I've got a couple of on my shelves at home, which are two-dimensional portraits. You know, this is, this is Jesus, that's John the Baptist, that's Isaiah, or, you know. He's, oh, that's nice. Did they look like that? Well, who knows, really. They look a bit Greek, really, but, you know. But when this word icon comes up in, you know, the image of the Father, he's the full 3D version. He's the real thing. He's not a picture of. He is the real deal. Jesus fully, completely and perfectly in himself shows us who and what God is. If you want to understand who and what God is, how he is, what he's like, look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. Study him. Get to watch him. And observe him. So you begin to say, he's going to do this now, isn't he? You're looking at God, folks. You're looking into the very heart of God. People say, people talk about a deeper revelation of the heart of God. I don't want to be kind of nasty about it. I don't need a deeper revelation of the heart of God than I can get from, from looking at Jesus. That's where it is. He's the image of God. True, complete, perfect. Nothing to add. Sorry to get excited here. God sent his son to go to the cross of Golgotha bearing away our sin. Making there in his bloody death reconciliation and peace with God. Taking away the wrath of God from us sinners. The Bible is packed with prophecy and teaching and powerful images like we used earlier. The blood of Jesus. It's a powerful statement of this truth that Jesus was our sacrifice on our cross so that he can now be our saviour. He can He can deliver, he can administrate the salvation, the mercy, the grace which he won for us at the cross. He's our current, present, yesterday, today, forever, saviour because he was our sacrifice at the cross. He alone can bring us forgiveness and freedom from our fallen and sinful nature and from our own self-destroying lifestyles. God sent his son to enter death for three days. His body lying in a stone tomb. His spirit with the father. Jesus says in scripture tasted death for us well three days is a long taste but it it wasn't forever but experienced death so that we will not we will never experience what Jesus experienced for us that was the last death for a saint we now close our eyes and are present with the Lord absent from the body present with the Lord waiting the resurrection day. We are consciously existing in the presence of our Father and of our Lord Jesus at the moment that we die in this life. We do not experience death as Jesus did for us. God sent his Son to rise again with a transformed, glorified body, the same body that hung on the cross. He still bears the evidence of the cross in his wrists and in his ankles. And he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days, showing himself alive. At that time too, risen from the dead, Jesus boldly laid claim to this. All power in heaven and on earth is given unto me. All authority. And he commissioned his disciples, and that includes us, to take this gospel to every people group under heaven. Now that's everybody, folks, right? Like everybody including the Islamic nations, including, you know, everybody to hear the gospel, to baptize those who believe and teach them, every believer, to obey what Jesus has told us. Get that? Not to understand. That's good, but to obey, to keep all that he commanded us. God sent his son to also ascend bodily into heaven so that there is a man seated on the throne of God. Jesus has taken up his heavenly throne and he's ruling over all things. I like that, all things. That's Tartu in Greek. All things. There's nothing left out of that. All right? It's all things. It's like the way some of us cook. It all goes in. You know? All things. In our minds we think, oh, okay, what about that? What about that? What about that? He reigns over all things for the good of those who are his. He also sent his son to build his church and Jesus is not going to fail to do that. To complete his kingdom 
because he reigns now. It's not he will reign, he is reigning until everything is under his feet. And in a sense, God hasn't sent back his son yet, but he will. There is a day, a day, a day and an hour known to the Father when Jesus will be sent back to earth, to return to earth, to raise all the dead, to judge all mankind, to renew the earth, to recreate it and bring in his eternal, sinless, glorious kingdom. He came and he completed his whole mission up to that time. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, everything that needed to be, to be done had been completed at that time. What, only left, what was left to be done? His rising from the dead and ascending to the Father and beginning his reign. And his intercession and appearance for us there as our high priest, as our advocate. Those things continue. But the work of redemption, all the laying down of everything that would now be implemented as salvation, as redemption, as rescue, was, for, was completed at the cross. Including the defeat of Satan, by the way, from the powers of darkness, at the cross. Here's a verse from Isaiah 44, 42 verse 4. I love it. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth. It's a prophecy about Messiah, my chosen one, my anointed one. Jesus has not failed, will not fail. Not one of those given to him by the Father before the world was made can be lost because Jesus cannot fail. He will build his church. He will complete his reign. He will subdue all his enemies and he will return on the last day. Now, I need to move on and say some things about some other things, but I'd love to talk some more about Jesus. Concerning him, I have much more to say. <laughs> but not today. I'm grateful to Bullinger, who uh, put together a study Bible called the Companion Bible. He points out that these six foundations that follow, practical ones, are three pairs. I won't use the fancy names he gave them. I've used a slightly simpler version of it. They are internal foundations, things that happen in us, Repentance and faith. There are external ones, things that are done to us, which are being baptized in water and being prayed for and having hands laid on you that you may receive the Holy Spirit. You can say, well, that happens in me as well. Yes, it does. But someone is involved in that, in baptizing you and laying hands on you. So it, it, it's, it happens with the help of others, with, the, with, with you know, other brothers and sisters are engaged in confirming you in the faith through baptism in water and the laying on of hands receive the Spirit. And then there are eternal foundations, things that go beyond this life, which are the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Let's just go to these quickly. Repentance from works that lead to death. Not just dead works, but you know, the better translation is works that lead to death. All right? The call of the gospel is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Let's understand this. Repentance is not measured by your sorrow. Repentance is not measured in tears and sighs. Repentance is measured by the degree of change. How you change. What you now don't do and do instead. So change lifestyle. Change behavior. Change of direction. A change of mind. A changed life. It's not a partial change. It's a total change. It's a 180 degree turn. Okay, let's do our maths right. The 360 puts you back where you started. A 180 puts you in the opposite direction from where you were going. It's like going down the wrong way, one-way street, the wrong way. You turn around and go the right way. That is this turning called repentance. Here's a scripture for you. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You say, well, God does that. Yes, he does. God does it, but... It's worked out in you and seen in you and it's called repentance or even conversion because it's two ways of saying the same thing. You are changed. I've been listening a lot recently to a really old song from Walter Hawkins singers. Uh, a wonderful change has come over me. I, I just keep listening to that song. I go, yes. I'm, it just delights me. You know? He's changed me. Is the, that's, that's an essential part of the gospel. Why? Why is change so important? Because otherwise, a human life lived without God and in disobedience to God will lead to what? 
death, human works without relation to God will lead to death. A life lived without turning to God in repentance and faith will end in condemnation and destruction under the justice of God. We only ever come to repentance through the goodness of God, His mercy of God. He leads us there. He empowers it. He makes it happen. That's the, that's the truth of the Scriptures, folks. He graciously changes our hearts and our minds. He puts a new heart within us. puts a new spirit within us. We begin to think differently. But you see, the danger is this, that some may seem to come towards being a Christian... But when they see that there's change involved, they don't much want to be changed. They want to carry that along. I don't want to let that go. Oh, no, I'm used to doing that. That simply won't work. Jesus is Savior, King, and Shepherd. You come to him on his terms, not yours. He offers new life in exchange for your old one. All of it. All of it. In fact... That's why, talk about a minute, baptism acts out dying and rising again. Old life is now gone. Well gone. All gone. What else can I say? As if, as if it's been stabbed through the heart, staked through the heart, nailed to the ground. It's gone. Repentance. I think you're with me now, you're understanding how crucial it is that we understand repentance if we're going to be a Christian. You don't carry your old ways with you. They've got to go. Not through your self-effort, but by recognizing that they are now dead. Come back to more on that another time. Second one is faith toward God. Notice this, folks. No matter what you hear on the TV channels, this is not faith in faith. It's faith in God. Jesus said, have faith in God. Trust, true faith is focused on God. And in this context, it's to God through Jesus. We trust God through Jesus because Jesus is the image of God. and That's how we understand God. Not just any faith will do. It's a faith that trusts and obeys God in Christ. You know, the language nowadays is... People of faith, you know, if you've got a religion, it's all right. Your religion's going to work for you some way in the end. Well, I actually believe the words of Jesus that he is exclusively, uniquely, the only way to God. I believe that. So faith towards God is actually faith towards God through Jesus. This faith believes the truth and lives by the truth. It's obedient to the truth. Faith towards God. So this is not just kind of like having vague religious ideas. This is actually living every day on the basis that I trust God today. I depend upon God today. I need God today. I'm not going to manage life without him. Therefore, I'm surrendering myself to him, depending upon him, asking of him, receiving from him. This is how I live. The just, says Habakkuk, years and years before Paul quotes it and so on in the New Testament, said the just will live by faith. Their way of life will be trusting and depending and obeying God. Their whole way of life. They will live by faith. Not just come into life through faith, like a transition. I've become a Christian now, so that's fine. I'm now, you know, I'm over here. But no, I continue to live by faith. Paul puts it in in, in one scripture. Uh, I live by the faith of him who loved me. And gave himself for me. That pen sticking in my <laughs> I live by the faith of him who loved me and gave himself. I live that way. Every day. Mondays too. So these two kind of, we can call them internal foundations. Repentance and faith. All right? Two old fashioned foundation stones there are internal. We start in them by the grace of God alone. We don't make them happen. He starts them in us and empowers them in us. But we must keep building on them. We don't move away from them. You never outgrow these things. You never become too mature for them. You keep building on them. We grow in them, growing in faith and obedience, growing through even more degrees of change in mind and heart and life. Got to move on. I've got to do these as outlines, not preachable. 
Instructions about washings is about baptism in water. I know that sounds a strange way of saying it, but it does mean baptism in water. See, the thing is this. At the start of the first century, there was quite a lot of washings going on. First of all, if someone was converted to Judaism from Gentile background, part of their conversion, obviously a man had to be circumcised, but male and female, had a ritual bath. And in fact, there are baths. They've excavated them around the area of the old temple in Jerusalem. Ritual baths. People went into the water, down some steps, stood in the water, dipped themselves under the water. They came out. There were obviously attendants around, and then they were taken in to the temple, and they could begin to function as a Jewish person to worship. and to, you know, that, that was a ritual bath that introduced them into being accepted as a Jew. Synagogues to this day have ritual baths, which serve other purposes as well. But never mind. Then John the Baptist came along. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. What was he referring to? Jesus, the Messiah, is coming. Get yourselves ready because the Messiah is about to appear. Get yourself sorted out. And people who believed his message and were prepared to change, to be changed, repent, and prepare for the appearing of Messiah. They didn't know it was Jesus until John pointed him out. Got baptized. So, you know, that's another way of washing. And then Jesus said, preach the gospel in every part of heaven and earth. You know, not heaven and earth, sorry. Every nation under earth. Those who believe, baptize them and teach them everything that I've commanded you. Teach them to do everything I've commanded you. Baptize them. So there's another baptism. Same kind of baptism, immersion in water, coming, coming out to be new, coming to a new life through immersion in water. So some people in those days, now I don't want to confuse you here, but you have to think about this, got baptized twice and could have even been baptized three times if they were converted from, 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 to, to Judaism, if, they were, if they, they were a believer of John the Baptist preaching in ministry, and then along comes Christian baptism, which Jesus gave us to do. So it's instruction about baptisms. In the book of Acts, you find Paul going to a place, and he, and he, he looks around and he said, something, what, I don't know about you guys, there's something missing. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, we didn't even hear about the Holy Spirit. Huh. What baptism did you receive? The baptism of John. So he rebaptized them into the name of Jesus, not waiting for Jesus, but Jesus has come, and this is the gospel now. And then they laid hands on them and prayed for them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So they, they'd been baptized twice by somebody who didn't know enough of the truth, and then by Paul. Jesus has instructed us to baptize all those who believe, so I'll say this very simply, therefore we have no business baptizing those who have not believed, including infants. It's not, it's not there to be done. We baptize those who have believed, who have confessed. And in fact, when the Bible talks about your confession, people think that's when I stand there in the morning and I'm making my morning coffee and I say, I confess before the Lord today. Hallelujah, I'm going to be this and I'm going to do that. When the Bible talks about your confession in the New Testament, it mostly refers to the day you were baptized and you professed, confessed your faith in him and your obedience to him to the witnesses who saw your baptism. Right? You then go out into the world and start to confess him there. But it starts with confessing his name in baptism, confessing your allegiance to him in baptism. Now, at the end of our foundation series, so Novemberish time, I want to plan a baptism morning here at Lighthouse, and hopefully there'll be some people who'll be ready to be baptized, understanding these things and ready to make that commitment to confess his name They begin to live as a Christian. Then there's instruction about laying on of hands, which is to receive the Holy Spirit. It's called in the in the book in Timothy and Titus, you lay hands on leaders, church leaders, elders, appoint them to their task. That's another kind of laying of hands. That's not the one that's talked about here in Hebrews. This is for every Christian in Hebrews. So therefore it's laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit. We read in Acts that when people that believed were baptized, apostles laid their hands upon them and they received the Holy Spirit, and later on clearly apostles didn't travel all over the Greek world doing that, so it was the it was people, it was the local elders and leaders who laid hands on people and prayed that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We believe in receiving and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Whether you call that Pentecostal or charismatic as a conviction, it's most the same thing. We believe that in in, in in that further on from repenting and believing, we need to know we have received the Holy Spirit. 
Not assume or kind of hope, but know. Therefore, there is this, this experience of knowing you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You sense his presence. You sense his, his kind of overwhelming presence. I was going to say overcoming presence. But he doesn't bash you around and make you do stuff. But as you submit to the sense of his presence, and that often comes with a sense of knowing the presence of Jesus and the joy of God and the love of God, then something happens to this. This wicked old thing that has done so much harm all your life, the tongue, it begins to bless God. In speaking in a language that you don't know, or in prophecy, one or the other, but it's inspired speech. The tongue kind of finds a new purpose, a sanctified purpose. To speak the words of God, to speak the praise of God, to worship God. And that could be, that's inspired speech, whether by tongues or by, by prophecy. So, again, guess what? Let's, let's do the teaching, then some weeks from now. We'll take time to lay hands upon, pray, lay hands upon people to receive the Holy Spirit. We might not do that on a Sunday morning, we might do that on a Sunday evening, so you just have got time. We can, we can wait, we can, we can be around, we're not in a rush. To, you know, food's in the oven, we've got to get home. You know. These foundations, these kind of external foundations, things that other people are involved in, baptising you, you know, laying hands upon you. These should happen just once for a believer, as a believer. They shouldn't be done to you as a decision of others. You, you know, that's why we believe in responsible age baptism. I would say adult, but we baptize teenagers as well. If they're responsible in their, in their faith. Receiving the Holy Spirit is a one-time act of God. A one-time event. But living in the good of being baptized in water and being filled with the Spirit is the way we now build. If the, if the initial experience of being baptized in water and filled with the Holy Spirit is the foundation, you don't walk away from that. So Paul, when he writes to the Romans and he's challenging their behavior, really, in certain ways, he says, don't you remember you were baptized? Don't you remember what that means? Didn't, you, didn't, didn't we explain that that means you're now dead to sin and alive to God? That the old man is dead and buried in Christ Jesus? It's as if you went to the cross with him? It's as if you were put in the grave with him? Don't you understand that? Don't you realize that his resurrection is yours a resurrection? You now have a new life in Christ? And he's arguing from their baptism as the, as the, as the demonstration of the gospel now being at work in them. We need to review and revisit our baptism. I remember when. Nothing. oh, I, I feel I could do that again. Now you go back and you revisit it again. And you rejoice in it again. And you reaffirm your vows made on that day to him. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul writes to the Ephesians, be, literally in, from the Greek, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't stop being filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep coming back to ask for his help, for his presence, for his empowering. The empowering presence of God, the Holy Spirit flooding our lives, not just Sunday mornings, but 24-7. The people of the Spirit who know His help, His energy, His wisdom, His, His courage coming to you. And when we're down, when we're, when we're struggling, when we need help, guess what we do? We, we, we rely upon the Holy Spirit to actually help us to ask the Lord for His help. You know, we don't know how to pray about this, so we say, oh, well, I'll just, I'll just pray with the help of the Holy Spirit and see where that goes, you know. We pray in the Spirit. And then we pray with understanding. I'm going to have to do some stuff on that as well, I know. We don't move off these foundations. We build on them. How many of you remember the day you were baptized? Good. Good. Glad, glad about that. How often have you thought about that recently? Yeah? See, this is a memorial of Christ's death and resurrection for us. But it's also a memorial to us of the fact that we are changed. That we are born of God. That the gospel has worked in us and is working in us. So in a sense, when we do this, we revisit our baptism. We say, I too was crucified with Christ. And I now live this life not in my strength, but in his strength, because I am now raised with Christ all these things fit together. God gives us these different images and powerful projections of, of, of life and death and glory and salvation through baptism, through breaking bread and so on. Okay, I've got two more to do. I'll go quickly. 
The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. We don't live for just this world for now. We live with a future hope. And our future hope is not to be disembodied spirits wandering through space. We are to be resurrected, glorified human beings. We will be physical and yet supernatural beings. In fact, very simply, we'll be just like Jesus as he is in his resurrection. We will be like that. We will be like him. God hasn't got a different plan for us. We're going to be made in his image, like Jesus. This will happen according to the repeated words of the Lord Jesus himself on the last day. So when we lay our fellow Christians in the earth, whether it's buried bodies or scattered ashes, we say this. This is the good old Anglican Book of Common Prayer, 1611, is it? Person standing at the graveside. Now, I, I, I've done this a few times. Stand there and you say these words. And these words are always, for me, the most powerful words. I remember a church elder in East Ham. His wife died. They were elderly. His wife died. I was there at the funeral. And Arthur Rayner was his name. And as his deceased wife was being laid in the grave, and these words were being said, Arthur Rayner lifted his hands and worshipped God. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall change our vile body that it may be like unto his glorious body according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. We do not mourn as unbelievers mourn. Death separates Christian from Christian now, but we shall be together with the Lord after the resurrection. We will be raised. Our Christian friends and our family members will be raised because he will raise us according to his repeated promise on the last day. All right, I've got to move on. The last one is eternal judgment. Oh, that's a tough one, David. Yeah, well, listen. We live in future hope, but also in the reality of future accountability. I'll give you a scripture I've referred to before. I, th- I, I think that images me somehow. That kind of explanation. <laughs> For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body whether according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Okay, Corinthians, see, two call Corinthians. Letter written to Christians. And they read this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. No exception. We are all accountable. And we will be recompensed, repaid, not wages, but we'll receive from him according to what we've done in this life, whether good or bad. The thing is, he already knows. It's not an investigation, it's not a trial. He already knows. You know, we have to remember that when we're praying. God doesn't need our information. He knows. He wants our requests with thanksgiving. Now, let me put this very clearly. A Christian on that day cannot be condemned, will not be damned, will not be sent to hell. Why? Because Jesus has already taken that from us. Romans 5.1 There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and then it explains why. But we will be either commended or chastised, rebuked on that day according to what we've done with ourselves, our gifts, our opportunities, how we've handled others. If, we may, if I may compare that last day for Christians to being the Lord Jesus' awards ceremony, it's a wonderful idea that some people will, be, will receive awards that day. you know. But not everyone will receive a reward because Jesus will be nothing less than truthful. I want to put it to you this way. Having already escaped condemnation, we should now be living for his commendation. For the reward. I'm not making it up. This is scripture. Living to hear words like this. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy 
of your master. You see, we're not living just to get by, to do as little harm as possible. We're living to hear that. These last two foundations anchor us in our thinking. We are in the world, but we're not of this world. We earn a living, we raise a family perhaps, we make use of the present world and age, but we are here temporarily. We're to inherit a much greater and more glorious world and age. We are aliens and pilgrims in this world. We live in time, but we're living for eternity. We're not living for ourselves, but for him. We don't need to possess this world. We don't need to win here. We don't need the fame. We don't need the success. Why? Because we've got a much better world to come. So if we suffer loss now, our future is still absolutely secure, anchored in Jesus. What really matters to to us cannot be taken from us because it's in Jesus himself. I just, want, I just felt to say this as well this morning. We, we, we lose sight of the fact, what the scriptures tell us, that every one of us is like a second away from the end of this life. From switching from time to eternity, to put it that way. Just saw on the news, um, cyclist, Iranian cyclist, competing in the Paralympics, came, had a crash wasn't that badly injured in the crash, but on the way to have his wounds attended to from the crash, had a heart attack. Gone. Gone. We live with an eternal perspective on life. And truthfully, we can't... The only things we can lose in this life are things we can't take into the next one. And the things that really matter, we will take with us. Character, love and obedience to Christ, award for having well done. These two foundations also cause us as well to have a deep concern for those who, around us who do not know and do not obey the Lord Jesus. Their life too is passing, is temporary. They too will stand before him on the last day. And without faith in Christ, they will be lost Condemned. That should make us earnest in prayer for people we care about. People close to us who do not love the Lord. And it should actually prepare us and, 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 and motivate us to take whatever opportunities we have to tell them, not that the sinner's going to hell, but to tell them about the Lord Jesus we love and obey. Our gospel doesn't start with sin. Our gospel certainly doesn't start with judgment. It starts with who? With Jesus. Speaking of him. Speaking highly of our master, our saviour. Think for a moment, what is your life built upon? Until a little earlier this year, some people in this country were building their lives, their hopes, their dreams on being part of a great united European society. I think they were mistaking the kingdom of God for Europe. They can't believe, they still can't believe they were on the losing side of the referendum and that Britain's doing a Brexit. It's like their the dreams are scattered. No, that can't be. My the dreams are shattered. Some people build their lives on the prospect of moving on in their career, earning more money year on year, trading this property for another one, and this car for that one, and this TV set for that one. And, and oh, by the way, along the line as well, I can't spend it all. I've got to save for a comfortable retirement. You know? Any number of events in life can shatter that dream in a day. After what we've looked at today, what are your foundations? Make sure that it's Jesus himself and these practical issues. Repentance, faith, baptism in water, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not in past events in your life, but how you build and live now. You're still building on those foundations. And living in the future expectation of two things. A day of glorious resurrection, but also a day of accountability. Day of judgment. See, Jesus is better. It's not too late, you know, in case there's a little voice whispering that to you. You can allow the Lord to teach you and ground you and rebuild you from this day. 
And for some here today, you can start today to learn from Jesus and follow Jesus. You can begin to be a Christian. He's very willing to be your saviour, your shepherd, your master, starting today. In either case that I've just mentioned, I've got these three words for you. Come to him. Turn to him. Speak to him. Ask of him. You see, I'm, I'm, it's nice if you appreciate things I say to you, but I'm really not concerned about that, your response to me or my preaching. I'm directing you to him. He looks for your response. He will hear your cry for change. He will strengthen your faith and your obedience if you will turn to him and ask him. And as I'm speaking to you, uh, the word of the Lord, prophetically at this moment in time to you, because I felt it writing this the other day. Now, it's time to come to him. To come to him to be thoroughly changed and remade. And to begin to build a new life which is all upon him and in him. We're going to go to communion and I've preached a bit too long. And in communion, these emblems of the bread, broken body of Jesus, wine, shed blood of Jesus, bring us again and again, every time we do this, to the gospel and to Jesus himself. And communion is the coming together of the saints in love, in fellowship, sharing together in bread and wine. But it's also our coming together, not for one another's sake, but our coming together to him. Even in breaking bread and taking wine, we are coming to Jesus. We are surrendering again to Jesus. We are confessing ourselves before him, perhaps as being a not particularly good servant. Lord, I'm really sorry. But strengthen me. Change me. We make our prayers to him. In a typically traditional service, such as an Anglican service, there's a point before communion when there is a time of confession. And I know Andy knows this prayer of confession by heart, having grown up saying it in Anglican church. He sometimes prays it out loud, still, to this day. These are great words. The Book of Common Prayer is full of great biblical truth. Let's shall we take a moment and pray together? I don't mind how you want to pray. I'll pray kind of, I hope, sensing what we might be feeling, but if you say, no, David's missed the point, I want to pray this, then pray right now. Open your heart to him and pray. Tell him who you are. Tell him what you feel. And ask him what you want him to do to help you, to change you, 